tonight is a real treat. Uh, I'm very excited to introduce somebody that um, I've only known for a little while. Um, we actually met um, kind of on Twitter, which always um, gives me a certain sense of anxiety. I feel moved to apologize if that's how somebody first encounters me. But um, uh, we've had some wonderful exchanges. And um, it's just such a pleasure to uh, introduce Chief Justice Bridget Mary McCormack. Um, who is currently president and CEO of the American Arbitration Association, which I just learned has over two dozen offices here in the United States and one in Singapore, uh, which keeps her traveling quite a bit. But before that, from 2013 to 2022, um, she was um, a, a Supreme Court Justice on the Michigan Supreme Court, first as an Associate Justice, and then from 2019 to 2022, uh, Chief Justice. Before that, she was a professor at the University of Michigan Law School, where she taught criminal law, and legal ethics and oversaw the law school's clinical programs. She's also taught at the Yale Law School and was trial counsel at the Legal Aid Society and then at the Office of the Appellate Defender um, in New York. And as I said, um, it's really a, a treat um, to be able to introduce um, my Twitter friend and hopefully still friend, um, Chief Justice Bridget Mary McCormick. Thank you so much. <clears throat> Uh, thanks, Clark. It's, it's uh, wonderful to be Twitter friends with you, and I think I'm going to like being actual friends with you even more. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be great. Um, so the AAA does not have 2,000 offices. We have 28. I must have been speaking imprecisely, but 28 I is a two lot. Dozen. Oh, sorry. two dozen is correct. I thought you said 2,000. I was like, holy crap, I have a lot of places <laughs> to get to. Uh, I'm going to be busy. Um, let's see if my slides work. Oops. Nope. Not quite. I'm seeing them, but you're not. Oh, you do? Okay. I don't want you to see that yet. We're not there yet. All right. Um, I want to thank the team at Cato for inviting me um, to join you today. It's an honor. Um, I, I was the lucky beneficiary of your excellent work um, when I sat on the Michigan Supreme Court. Um, I want to thank you for what you do and encourage you to keep doing it in state Supreme Courts, where we decide really important issues and uh, get variable work on those issues. We are not like the U.S. Supreme Court. We need your help, and we appreciate it. So thank you for all of that. My topic today is the massive market failure of the civil justice system and its role in undermining the rule of law. I'm gonna start with a description of the current state of civil justice in America. I want us all to be on the same page before I turn it to diagnosing some of the causes of the brokenness. After my diagnosis, I'm gonna describe some of the ripples of change I see on the horizon and what's at stake. And here's my thesis. We can't go on like this. But before I begin, or about what I am not talking about and what not to infer from that, Please don't take my focus on the civil justice system to mean the criminal justice system is currently serving the rule of law ably. It's not great for the rule of law that in most jurisdictions you can be punished for conduct a jury has said you're not guilty of. And did you know that if you're represented by ineffective counsel when the state seeks to terminate your parental rights, and as a result of that inadequate representation, you lose your kids, there is no process for addressing that wrong. It's a too bad so sad rule when that happens in most jurisdictions. Okay, back to the topic I came to discuss. Justice system data is very hard to come by, but there is some data about the civil justice system that captures its failures. I swear I'm doing it. That way? That way. There we go. I should do it a couple times. The Legal Services Corporation's 2022 Justice Gap Report found that 92% of civil legal problems of low-income people get either no or inadequate legal help. 
That's a six percentage point increase over the prior study from 2017, and it's not a pandemic blip. During that same period, total revenue to legal aid programs increased by 31%. And there's this. The National Center for State Courts estimates that both parties have lawyers in only 24% of civil cases in state courts, where about 95% of civil litigation occurs. In other words, in more than three quarters of civil cases, at least one party struggles to navigate a legal system where rules are written in a language they don't speak or understand. And this, every year the World Justice Project ranks world, the world's countries on their compliance with various measures of the rule of law. One of those measures is the accessibility and affordability of civil justice. The most recent rule of law index released late last year ranks the United States 115th out of 140 countries on the accessibility and affordability of civil justice. Among the 43 wealthiest countries in the world, the United States ranks 43rd. A lot of other countries do justice better than we do. The popular idea of our justice system, the one we see on TV and teach in our law schools, where both parties are represented by lawyers who present evidence and make legal arguments for their clients and the best legal argument wins is a fiction in the vast majority of civil cases in the United States today. The rate of lawyerless litigants is particularly troubling because of the kinds of cases they're managing on their own. High stakes cases. High stakes not because billions of dollars are at stake but because they often involve something more fundamental. Shelter, personal safety, family, financial stability. This is relatively new. While state court data is especially opaque, the evidence we have shows that as recently as the start of the last quarter of the previous century, lawyerless litigants were the exception. There was then a steady rise over the remainder of the 20th century until by the early 2000s, we were seeing the numbers we have today. In 1977, two students at Yale Law School did a study of 2,500 divorce cases in two trial courts in Connecticut and published their results in an unsigned project in the Yale Law Journal. The students were Deborah Rohde and her husband-to-be, Ralph Kavanaugh. They found that 2.7% of the divorce cases they studied involved an unrepresented litigant. They also cited a then-recent study in San Mateo County, California, showing that 20% of divorce petitioners were proceeding without lawyers there, a figure they characterize as an unprecedented surge in self-representation. Of course, there are lots of government services people navigate without experts. What does not having an expert for a justice matter mean, you might wonder. Oops, we're doing another slide. Sorry, this could be smoother. The lawyers in the room know the fundamental legal fiction that we're all charged with knowing the law. For those of you who are not lawyers, and I heard there are a few in the room, ignorance of the law is never a defense to any claim or charge, and there's a lot of law to know. Take crimes, for example. According to best estimates, and estimates are all we have, there are about 4,500 federal crimes in the United States Code and more than 300,000 federal crimes dispersed throughout the federal regulations. I can't figure out the numbers for any individual states and nor can any of the generative AI tools I consulted. But fortune-telling is still a crime in most jurisdictions. In North Carolina, it's a crime if your bingo game lasts more than five hours or if you play bingo while intoxicated. In Vermont, it's still a crime for a woman to get false teeth without getting permission from her husband. There isn't one place to find out what the law is. No resource explains in plain language what exactly the law requires of you or provides for you. Do you know what happens to your stuff if you die without a will? The lawyers probably do. I wasn't sure, so I asked Google and I got this answer. 
If you die without a will, you are intestate, and a probate court is an intestate. Doesn't matter. If you die without a will, you are intestate or intestate, and a probate court will apply the intestacy laws of the state where you reside to determine how to distribute your property among your next of kin. Naturally, I next asked what the intestacy laws of Michigan are. Things went downhill from there. One result seemed to be a link to a Michigan statute, but it didn't work. The rest were lawyers' websites, one scarier than the next. Here's one example. Dying without a will may become a less than ideal situation. For example, the court could find that a distant relative that you never intended to give your money or property to could be entitled to your estate. Yikes, like my cousin Tommy, I can't stand Tommy if he gets my stuff. You, this is a very devastating scenario, and at a, at a minimum, you, you should have a last will and testament drafted that outlines who should receive your money and your property. Many people have some familiarity with some parts of the U.S. Constitution, but even when we know the particular words in a constitutional provision, we don't generally know what they mean in practice. The words have been interpreted, as we know, by judges for some 200 years or so, and it's those interpretations that are, in fact, the rule of law, and they aren't always intuitive. Most of us know that we have a constitutional right to be tried by a jury of our peers if we're accused of a crime. But in most cases, exercising that right will mean exposing yourself to significantly longer punishment if convicted. And that consequence, judges have found, is perfectly constitutional. Right to a jury trial-ish. And as for statutes, you might find your way to reading them online, but after spending 10 years trying to make sense of many of them with six other people trained and paid to do that, who disagreed regularly, well, best of luck. Then there are other legal principles, rules of decision, that are also judge-made and a little bit more freewheeling and can overlay constitutional or statutory law. These are generally not tied directly to any language of a constitutional provision or statute, Google mootness, ripeness, standing, qualified immunity, you can go on and on. To have access to a comprehensive collection of all these judicial pronouncements of the law, also known as the law, you need a subscription to the most user-unfriendly search engine you'll, you will ever interact with. There's more still. There are also sets of rules that govern how you can use the law in courts. And a particular rule of law will be different from one state to state, from state to state, and sometimes from courthouse to courthouse. The rules for how to interact with a court can be different from courtroom to courtroom. That's right. In addition to sorting out the legal rules and principles and court rules that govern your dispute, you better check Judge What's-Her-Name's website for any special rules that you have to follow if she has a website. If she doesn't, you can call her office and see if she will fax you her standing order. I watched some eviction cases recently before a thoughtful judge in Michigan. We can still watch a little bit of court online in Michigan. I'm going to read you one short transcript from an eviction hearing after I get one sip of water. The judge says, we'll come to order. The record may reflect the next summary proceedings matter involving courtyard apartments versus Joshua Salinas and all other occupants. Counsel is appearing on behalf of the plaintiff. The defendant has failed to appear as I understand it, not in the hallway either. Counsel, he's not. The judge, all right, counsel, anything for the record? Good afternoon. Counsel, good afternoon, Your Honor. For the record, if it pleases the court, P64392, with the law firm of Swiss Tech Levine, I represent courtyards. This matter is set for a second hearing after a magistrate call a week ago. Mr. Salinas failed to appear at that time as well. So this is a second consecutive failure to appear. This matter is a health hazard matter. We're seeking immediate turnover of the property. So we would ask for a judgment for possession be entered at this time and that we be allowed to submit a writ immediately 
and that an order for eviction be issued as soon as the fees and the form is received by the, the court, the judge. All right. Do you have someone available for brief testimony in support of the default judgment today? Counsel, I don't. Um, Ms. Soto, she has been with us before. She's the property manager. She's ill. She's ill at the moment. And this was a summary proceeding, and I thought that we could possibly do that, the judge. So on this, the notice to quit was served August 4th. I would note that notice to quit indicated in boldface type, landlord will seek immediate issuance of writ of restitution. The options given to the tenant were to remove the health hazards, repair, and allow inspection by the landlord within seven days or move out. Again, that was served, and proof of service shows August 4th on the defendant. Complaint was then filed in this particular matter for termination of tenancy based upon health hazard or damage to property. And paragraph 9, it's the standard scale VC form 102B checked in boldface. The plaintiff requests that these, that in regular type, an immediate order of eviction. That was filed with the court properly and the lawsuit was mailed, certificate of mailing protected on August 17th. And the lawsuit is posted for proof of service, indicating it was posted attached to the premises on August 26th under MCR 4.201, blah, blah, blah. I will sign both the possession of judgment, the writ of restitution, as well as if they're provided to the court. How much of that would Mr. Salinas have understood if he were there? Why did the judge ask for a witness and then not require one? Is there a rule that requires testimony? Is it a court rule? Is it a statute? How would you figure that out if you were not a lawyer? How would you figure it out if you were a lawyer? Did the tenant have any defenses? How would you figure that out? When you say it all out loud, it starts to sound not very fair. It's not justice to compel people who can't afford a lawyer to play by the rules of a system designed only for those who can. It's wrong. And how did we get here? The American legal system was built by lawyers, for lawyers, at a time when everyone had a lawyer. Four industrial revolutions passed, and the complexity of our economy and society changed dramatically, yet almost no updates have been made to our legal processes. Oh, where? I already got there. Huh. Okay. A surgeon dropped from 1890, that's a, moder that's a surgical suite from 1890, on the top left corner of the slide, dropped into a modern surgical suite, the, the photo right beneath it, would have no idea where he was. But a lawyer who appeared in the Iron County, Michigan courthouse in 1890, on the, uh, in the middle, um, would be just fine in that same courthouse today. Almost nothing has changed. Why hasn't change come for the legal profession in the way it's come for so many other industries? Where is the civil justice Netflix? Why are lawyers so terrible at solving problems that require innovation, collaboration, and also excellent at boxing out others who might be better at it? Part of it's cultural. <clears throat> Our training and culture are risk-averse and backward-looking. We are trained that incremental change leads to lasting solutions with less conflict. And lawyers are committed to the way we've always done things. One of our most essential decision-making norms is stare decisis. <clears throat> what was decided before governs what we decide today, and there is a strong cultural norm that favors the status quo. We all did it this way, and you should too. Part of it is practical. We lawyers and judges attend to emergencies first, and we always have emergencies. We focus on lots of critical immediate problems, which keeps us from focusing on structural problems. Each stakeholder group may work in good faith to address the immediate problems squarely in its wheelhouse. 
<clears throat> but none have time to step back and explore upstream solutions. Part is lack of resources, except for those lawyers in, in big law, a small minority of those in the profession. Lawyers' priorities are structured around financing their practices and paying their employees. Courts struggle to keep the lights on, judges train and pay court staff a living wage. Funding for technology, data collection, evidence-based study, and reform is minimal, and the competing priorities of dispensing justice daily are formidable. <clears throat> and part is bar federalism. I think I've missed a slide, yeah. Part is bar federalism. Bar examiners in each state work separately, often duplicating work and often missing each other's insights. Legal system stakeholders react to one another, but rarely collaborate. Law schools have primarily built their curriculums to accommodate a complex web of state licensing requirements, educational accreditation requirements, and university policies, further structured by a ranking system built on criteria that locks in an anachronistic vision of the profession. While law schools and courts operate independently, they are in fact interlocking systems, each dependent on and reactive to the other, and each bound by funding models, traditions, and cultures that have, over time, magnified the gap between those who become lawyers and those who need the justice system to protect their rights. Neither has direct control over the other. Both serve many other stakeholders. In most jurisdictions, state supreme courts and law schools interact very rarely. In a self-regulation and licensure federalism system, there is no obvious first mover for system-wide reform. And lawyers are resistant to allowing others to help. Let me focus on the, on, for a minute on the supply side. <clears throat> According to American Bar Association data, in 2018, around 84% of law school graduates were employed in positions requiring bar passage or where a JD provides an advantage. The ABA data has been criticized for overstating employment rates by including short-term and non-professional jobs, and some suggest that full legal employment is likely 10 to 20% lower. America's lawyers devote three years and hundreds of thousand dollars to learn the law, some graduating with crippling debt, and a significant number of them are underemployed. Now, I don't mean to suggest that this market mismatch is a solution waiting to happen. We're not going to lawyer our way out of the civil justice problem. If the paying work available now is not, a, not enough to keep our current roster of lawyers fully employed, the 92% of our neighbors who can't afford to pay lawyers to help with their justice problems will not close that gap in our current models. But they can't get help from anyone else either. In most states, anyone who's not a lawyer risks criminal punishment for the unlicensed practice of law. The definition of the practice of law and the unauthorized practice of law is not are not uniform and are not easily understandable. See above, impossible to find the law. But most UPL restrictions prohibit people from giving out-of-court legal advice or helping prepare legal documents. This wasn't always the case in the United States. At the founding, when only lawyers could advocate in most courts, you could still get help from your family and friends with legal problems outside of court. That started to change in the early part of the 20th century when courts prohibited legal help by people who were not lawyers outside of courthouses too, first when done for a fee, and then eventually when done at all. Now lawyers' monopolies around the country restrict, restrict anyone who is not a lawyer from helping another person with a legal problem. It isn't like this in other professions where resources are critical to basic human needs. You don't see a surgeon or a doctor every time you have a medical problem. Sometimes a PA or a nurse practitioner is all you need. 82% of healthcare workers have a bachelor, associate, or vocational degree, and only 9.3% have an MD or a DO. 
In contrast, 80% of legal service workers have a law degree. This might sound a little bit like a requiem for the legal system we love, but I see lots of hopeful ripples. It's a bit of a Jenga tower, and if the right pieces are pulled out, it could topple quickly and you could rebuild something that made a little more sense. And a number of pieces have been pulled out of the tower recently, which I'm gonna to organize today in three buckets, regulatory reform, litigation, and other stuff. So starting with regulatory reform, you've likely, you've likely uh, know this story. Two state Supreme Courts have attempted to be first movers to address the civil justice crisis. In 2020, the Utah Supreme Court established a licensed paralegal practitioner program, I'm gonna call that LPP, that allows qualified non-lawyers to provide limited legal services in debt collection, landlord-tenant disputes, and family law matters. Critics, mostly lawyers, initially argued that LPPs might increase consumer confusion and harm. To become an LPP, individuals must possess an associate or bachelor's degree and then complete an approved LPP education program, exams, and an apprenticeship. LPPs must adhere to professional conduct rules and complete 12 hours of continuing education annually. In the first two years following the launch, over 75 individuals have been approved as LPPs and began providing legal services in Utah. In 2021, the Arizona Supreme Court adopted rules to create a new licensing program, allowing qualified non-lawyers to provide specific legal services. Arizona licenses legal paraprofessionals who meet specific education and training requirements set by the court. To qualify, individuals must possess an associate's degree or higher and complete an LP education program approved by the court. LPs must adhere to rules of professional conduct and compete annual continuing education. LPs can provide specific legal services in family law, landlord-tenant disputes, debt collection defense, and administrative appeals. They can prepare legal documents, advise clients on procedural issues, and represent clients in certain administrative hearings. They can't appear in court or negotiate on a client's behalf. The program launched in January 2022. From January 1 to December 31, 2022, 25 legal paraprofessionals were approved. As of January 23, 10 more were approved, and I don't have more recent data than that. In addition to creating the legal paraprofessional program, the Arizona Supreme Court amended Rule 5.4 of the Rules of Professional Conduct. Rule 5.4 prohibits lawyers from sharing legal fees or forming partnerships with non-lawyers for law practice. The rationale for the rule is allegedly to prevent outside influence over lawyers' independent professional judgment. Arizona's revised 5.4 allows for alternative business structures and non-lawyer ownership of law firms in Arizona, provided specific requirements are met. For example, lawyers must still retain majority control over the firm and be responsible for ethical and professional conduct, and firms must not allow non-lawyer involvement in matters of legal judgment. Arizona's rule change aligns with similar rules in England, Australia, and parts of Canada and reflects the view that opening the door to new capital and business structures can increase access to legal services without undermining lawyers' duties to clients. More flexible rules facilitate financial investment in innovations like technology solutions for cost-effective legal services. And so far, the sky hasn't fallen in either state. Early evaluation of both programs has been encouraging. A team at Stanford conducted, conducted in-depth inter interviews and analysis of the authorized entities in Utah and Arizona through June 30th, 2022. They found that innovations have emerged in five primary forms. Traditional law firms have adapted their business structures and service models 
or capital structures, and they make up about 35% of the authorized entities. Law companies like Rocket Lawyer and LegalZoom represent 38% of authorized entities. These companies have chosen to become regulated so they could employ lawyers. Non-law companies, newcomers to the sector, comprise about 18% of ent entities. These are companies often set up um, on service models that combine law with other services, such as accountants. Intermediate, uh, intermediary platforms connect lawyers to potential clients. There's a small group of those. And finally, ent entities using non-lawyers to practice law. These providers use waivers for unauthorized practice of law available in Utah. One example, RASA uses AI and non-lawyer experts to help Utah residents with criminal record expungements. The Stanford team drew some thematic conclusions from the interviews. They found that lawyers are pivotal in the innovations of these new entities. They're developing new concepts and actively involved in various roles, such as owners, investors, and compliance officers. They found that a significant proportion of these entities are selling primarily to individual consumers and small businesses, the people law market. And most importantly, they found that the reforms haven't resulted in significant consumer harm. Both Utah and Arizona have reported relatively low complaints about the new entities. The regulatory reform story, however, is a bit two steps forward, 1.5 steps back. 2022 witnessed setbacks California's initiative to introduce regulatory reforms was met with significant resistance from the bar and the legislature, culminating in a legislative ban on specific reforms. And the ABA issued a non-binding resolution against states considering non-lawyer ownership changes. But Oregon and Alaska both recently introduced legal paraprofessional programs, and other states are considering it. Regulatory reform isn't the only Jenga piece that's been pulled out. Litigation is also, oops, I forgot that slide. Litigation is also having an impact. The Upsolve uh, litigation is familiar to my friends at Cato who have showed up in it. In April 2019, the nonprofit organization Upsolve challenged New York's UPL law as it applied to their program. Upsolve provides a free web-based platform that helps low-income individuals file for Chapter 7 bankruptcy without an attorney. Upsolve wanted to also be able to help its users in debt collection actions by having trained workers who are not lawyers provide free legal advice on responding to debt collection lawsuits. That conduct, of course, would trigger New York's UPL statute, hence the litigation. Upsolve argued that New York's ban on the unlicensed practice of law violated the First Amendment. Upsolve's CEO, by the way, pictured there, Rohan Pavaluri, is not a lawyer. The federal district court ruled in favor of Upsolve, finding that New York's ban on the unlicensed practice of law was unconstitutional because it violated the First Amendment by being overbroad and infringing on Upsolve's free speech rights. The Attorney General has appealed that decision. The South Carolina uh, branch of the NAACP has filed a federal lawsuit challenging that state's UPL statute. The NAACP wants its members to be able to provide limited but critical guidance to low-income tenants facing eviction, like explaining the eviction process, possible defenses, and the importance of requesting a hearing before losing their homes by default. Like Upsolve, the NAACP believes citizens have a First Amendment right to speak and associate by offering such guidance. Incidentally, you don't have to be a lawyer to be a magistrate who presides over eviction cases in South Carolina. The judge in that case, the federal judge obeyed the case um, for the plaintiffs to petition the state Supreme Court to determine whether the intended conduct would violate South Carolina's prohibition on the unauthorized practice of law. 
because, according to the judge, the state Supreme Court has exclusive jurisdiction over interpreting what constitutes the practice of law in South Carolina, which I suppose is true, but the judge does get to decide whether whatever it is violates the First Amendment. Anyway, more, more on that, more to come, I think. Um, the antitrust division of the United States Department of Justice has also appeared on this issue. Recently, the DOJ submitted a letter in support of proposals to expand access to legal services in North Carolina. In the letter, the DOJ argues that consumers benefit from competition between lawyers and non-lawyers, and with many legal services priced out of reach, lower-priced lower options are sorely needed. The DOJ noted that unlike at the federal level, where antitrust is statutory, in North Carolina, North Carolina's constitution, adopted December 1776, says that, quote, monopolies are contrary to the genius of a free state and shall not be allowed. Federal agencies have long allowed non-lawyers to appear in proceedings, from patent and trademark tribunals to immigration courts. Then there's the other stuff. The chief justices have kind of had it. They formed a new committee, and they're going to be targeting the barriers to providing better service to people with civil justice problems. They've showed up at uh, the accreditation meetings, and they want to they they want they, they want to be heard on this problem. They're worried that civil justice crisis undermines all of their work. I don't think they're wrong. Ask Tommy or me about frontline justice. We both sit on the National Advisory Board. It's a newly launched bipartisan national effort to reform civil justice work and also civil justice workers. And when asked, the public overwhelmingly favors, favors reform. When the Arizona Supreme Court was working on its regulatory reform package, it held public meetings around the state and sought public feedback by survey. It also surveyed lawyers. Lawyers surveyed about the reforms were overwhelmingly against them. The public surveys produced exactly the opposite results. And that input played a significant role in the success of reform in Arizona. And finally, the disruptor of all disruptors that has just come on the scene, in my view, is generative AI, which I think is poised to knock the tower right over. Um, large language models are already transforming the business and practice of law, and legal education isn't far off. They're automating many of the repetitive tasks that lawyers do, analyzing data sets, writing code. You no doubt saw that when ChatGPT 3 was released in November, it took the bar exam, and it failed. It only passed two of the multi-state sections, contracts and or maybe it's torts and evidence. It passed only two, failed the exam. In March, when GPT-4 was released, it took the bar exam again, and it not only passed, it scored in the top 10%, and it did it in six minutes. These models can democratize legal information. They can democratize law. They can even play, they can even a lot of playing fields. There are, of course, problems to solve along the way. If AI learns from biased data, which is a lot of data, it can learn biases. But humans who make decisions in courts sometimes also have biases, and there is no code to run to fix those. Is TikToking the prompts you used in GPT-4 to respond to your eviction notice the unlicensed practice of law? I'm waiting for the legal influencers to take to TikTok and explain exactly what prompts they put into 
these uh, LLMs to help people um, uh, across their communities. Getting back out of the weeds, why am I talking about this topic on Constitution Day? Well, there are some meat and potatoes constitutional questions wrapped up in the unlicensed practice of law statute challenges, but you all at Cato know those well. They can infringe on First Amendment freedoms of speech, press, assembly, and petitioning the government. But I have something more fundamental I'm, I'm worried about. The, the rule of law is built on a foundation of public confidence. And what happens if the public loses confidence? Today, about 1,400 eviction cases were heard in the city of Detroit District Court, just today, 1,400. Most of them didn't have lawyers. Many didn't show up. Some probably had legal defenses. Others didn't, but might have been able to work out a resolution that might have made a difference for their family. Tomorrow, there'll be another 1,400. During the pandemic, courts across the country, as you know, pivoted to remote proceedings to continue to administer justice and keep the public safe. It was easier in some places than others, but we all learned a lot. We were running an experiment whether or not we were interested in the results. And we learned that default rates in cases where people navigate courts without lawyers dropped significantly when people had remote options for appearing. In retrospect, <coughs> duh. Yes, technology can be a barrier for some people, but do you know what barriers can be more substantial? Transportation, childcare, a job with no time off, a disability. A car is more expensive than a smartphone. And legal aid lawyers estimated that their ability to provide representation increased sevenfold when they could eliminate transportation and parking. More people showed up for jury duty than ever before when they could remote in to, to serve. When it was safe to go back into courts, we had choices. We could go back to doing the things, we, we, doing things the way we always had done them, or we could take account of this new data that giving people a remote option made it more, far, far more likely they could resolve their disputes, and more likely they'd be re represented, and that more people could participate in the jury process. Courts make the rules about how we administer justice. With some exceptions, but very few, they return to doing things the way they always had. In Michigan, we published a proposed rule and took public input on whether to continue hearings remotely, at least many hearings remotely. The public hearing on the rule change was the most attended public hearing in my 10 years on the bench. It took most of the day and we limit everybody to three minutes of testimony. The court adopted the rule change, but with dissents. I responded to my dissenting colleagues in a concurrence to the order, which ended with this. The judiciary should not and cannot be the only institution that does not benefit from the lessons learned from the COVID-19 pandemic and the accelerated in innovation it brought. More importantly, the public, who have traditionally been excluded from full participation in many of our courts, should not lose a valuable new tool for accessing justice. Ours is a government instituted for the people, after all. Public confidence in courts is declining. Federal courts more than state courts, but I think that's only because federal courts are measured more than state courts. I think if you asked people in their local community who have to navigate state courts all the time, you'd find great dissatisfaction. 
The rule of law is just a set of ideas, and it's only as strong as the public's confidence in those ideas. When the rules are hostile to you, you might stop caring about the rules. We have a tremendous amount at stake when the rule of law is wobbly. Lawyers and judges are uniquely positioned to shore it up if we want to. I hope we do. Happy Constitution Day. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm happy to do questions if that's okay. Oh, there we go. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. Non-lawyers are not the only ones who are barred from practicing law. Lawyers are barred from practicing law in states where they're not licensed. I recall reading one case where an attorney got disciplined because he drafted a complaint for a friend in another state who then filed it and pursued it pro bono. How do you feel about breaking down the barriers to interstate practice of law? Break it down as fast as you can. It's ridiculous. I mean, I mean, I mean, lawyers. In many states, you can jump through like 25 hoops and pay a bunch of money, and then find some guy, and then like maybe you can show up at the court hearing. Why, why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? We have trouble. We, pe people need help, and we need people to have confidence in this legal system. It's a racket, and it's a racket that should end. Uh, Chris Green from Ole Miss. Uh, would things be better if law were an undergraduate subject like it is in just about the rest of the world? Yeah, I, I mean, so I have lots of thoughts on like reforming legal education as well. And I think, um, you know, that's a different talk, but I do think uh, the, the, the way generative AI is going to uproot legal education is really going to be stunning. Um, but the, uh, my answer is yes, I would teach. Uh, I, I, I would license people for all different kinds of things within law, like within medicine. And there's no reason why undergraduate students couldn't learn a whole lot and be able to be quite helpful with certain, certain licensure uh, requirements. In addition to that, I think that, honestly, you know, us olds are going to have to move aside and let the, the, the young people are actually going to be able to, like, know what to do with these powerful tools and, and solve these problems. So I'm, I'm for uh, empowering uh, undergraduates as much as possible. I would also, if you made me the dean of a law school, which nobody would, but I would send everybody to an eviction docket for the first week, a debt collection docket the second week, and a bond setting docket the third week, and then teach them technology for three more weeks, and then go back to public law, private law, blah, blah, blah. We can learn all that. They're all over. Uh, in most other industries, for lack of a better term, um, reform doesn't come from the practitioners. You know, doctors don't change the way things get done. The pharmaceutical companies, the, pharmace the uh, uh, medical device makers, the hospital administrators, and it seems to me none of those structures exist in the legal system. The reforms come from judges and lawyers. What other structures might be made available to help this process. And I suppose some could be in, uh, in uh, uh, governmental areas, but it, it seems to me there's a role for private things, whether they're companies or not, I don't know, but it, they're not visible. 
Yeah, I mean, disruption is almost always a, a story about the incumbent more than it is the disruptor. And your point that we, you know, lawyers and judges have been pretty successful at um, closing every gate so disruptors can't even, you know, see what we're doing inside is a good one. Um, but I think that's all going to change with, with technology soon. So I, 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 I could be wrong, but, but I think we're at a, we're at a, a different crossroads now. Um, and I, 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 even though uh, judges and lawyers might be slow to adapt to change, not all, there are some um, very innovative lawyers out there and a couple judges, but um, I think the change is going to come from the public and the entrepreneurs who see an opportunity. I see you there, I see you there. I, I was surprised to see that the U.S. ranked last in Western countries because places like the U.K. and France obviously have a much longer and more established legal system since they existed for far longer than we did. So how did they manage to successfully reform and what lessons can we port over to the U.S. from those older legal systems? And number two, should we just get rid of the mandatory bar altogether or is that too chaotic of a solution? Um, both good questions. Um, I don't know enough about France, um, but England and Canada both um, allow uh, investment in law practice from um, uh, other actors, and uh, they have, as a result, have have a little bit less um, of, a, of a civil justice crisis than we have. Um, they also have different education systems, so you can study law and um, you can be you, you can provide some level of service uh, without having to go to seven years of, of school and become significantly in debt so I think you know they, they, they have different models um, but I but I think there's a lot to learn from countries that are doing justice better than we are it was by the way last 43 out of 43 of the, of the wealthiest countries in the world but still that applies mandatory bar is a good one I mean I, you know I don't know if a, if an LLM can pass the bar in in, in six minutes, what are we doing? Are we really, I mean, why, why does it make sense that we're, we're just gonna keep testing in a way that might have made sense 10, 20, 30 years ago, instead of um, figuring out what the best model for licensure really would be? What would be the way we could actually, you know, make sure that the public was gonna be protected if we gave somebody a law license? I don't know if it's, the bar exam. In the United States, it usually takes two years to get an MBA. If you go to Europe, you can get one in a year or a year in a summer with some of the top programs in the world. Hmm. Does law school need to be three years long? Uh, you tell me, I mean, I don't know what I don't know. I think I could teach public law and private law in one year. I could send you to a legal residency your second year. I could I could do public law, private law in one year. I could test you at the end of public law, private law, like we do to medical students at the end of two years. And then I could put you in a residency. And in your residency, you could actually close the civil justice gap for a couple of years. The problem that the problem to getting to that solution is it takes all of these stakeholders that don't communicate with one another but whose decisions 
um, drive um, and entrench the problems, right? You need the accreditor and the state Supreme Courts and the ALS, I think, I guess the NCBE. You need like a massive, like, we need to all go lock ourselves in a room for three days and figure this out because it's not working. And apparently that's happened in other professions. I learned recently that all right, I happen to be the chair of the ABA section on legal education and admission to the bar. I'm the, I am the chair of the accreditation committee this year. So I'm trying to actually figure this out. Like, is there a way to get everybody in a room and figure out is there a, is there a more rational way to do this Like, that, that would actually serve the public? And it, it, apparently it, it happened in um, architecture. They had similarly entrenched rules that, were, that didn't make sense across the system, and they kind of had a come to Jesus with all the different stakeholders and like came out of the room and fixed everything. I mean, probably it's not all fixed, but you know what I mean. Came out with a much more rational system. We don't, ha we don't do that right now in, in legal. There's all sorts of, you, you pick, you have the microphone. I don't want to be in charge of that. Uh, thank you. Continuing uh, with, with um, areas that are close to being a JD, but not um, it seems like the paralegal uh, prestige and income of that has declined a little bit, maybe. And uh, it seems to me, from what I've observed, that people from wealthier backgrounds who don't become JDs often still get other degrees that are close to that, whether it's public policy or public administration in similar degrees. So what's your uh, opinion on what should happen with those type of programs and what those people should do? With paralegal programs and, and other, I mean, um, you know, the, I think that the data we're seeing from Utah and Arizona is, um, although it's still, I think, a pretty small number of people who are being licensed as um, paralegal-ish uh, positions, it's it's making a difference in closing the in closing the justice gap in those states. So, I mean, why why every single state supreme court hasn't done that already after seeing Arizona and um, Utah's uh, results is a testament to how strong the monopoly is. Hi, I have a question about funding of courts. I'm not an attorney. I mean, my understanding is they're a lot of times funded through like fees on people. There's a disincentive in some ways for law enforcement, for pretextual stops, asset forfeiture. How much of the issues that you're talking about are not just on the user supply side, but on the way the courts fundamentally are established and funded? And does it create more civil injustice or illiberties than before in some cases. Yeah, um, really important issue with like 25 really important sub-issues. Court funding is super controversial and um, um, in most states there is some statewide funding for judges but most local courts are funded by their local funding units and that means that they're not funded equally. You know, in, in, in Michigan, for example, we have 83 counties and some uh, county courts are extremely well-funded because they have, a, they have a wealthy tax base and others are not well-funded at all and it makes uh, a robust difference in the outcomes that people get. Not only because there might be some incentive for fines and fees, um, and uh, a, a group of district court judges in Michigan submitted an affidavit in, in, in litigation in Michigan saying they felt pressure from their funding units to collect fines and fees in cases, which interferes with their ability to 
um, decide those, those, cases, those cases fairly. But not only that, it also makes a difference in the options people have in those counties. So if you get, um, if you have a mental health problem in Oakland County, Michigan, there's likely to be some place a court can send you where you can get help. Not true in most of the rural or northern counties. So you're going to county jail. That's where you're going. Thank you, Chief. I have two questions. The first one is, what is your opinion on the effectiveness of dispute resolution as a remedy for this program? And then the second question is, what are the state court's hesitancies with really kind of developing these programs, especially because mediators, they could be trained in six weeks and then put into an effective position? Yeah, it's a great question. And obviously, I like spend a lot of time now thinking about alternative dispute resolution and how it, um, in fact, is an important service to the courts. If we, you know, if we provide um, options for parties who can and want to choose alternative ways to resolve their disputes, we can lessen the load on the courts. But the courts have, have experimented with some alternative dispute resolution uh, platforms that have been stunningly successful in recent years in particular. So during COVID-19, um, a lot of states, Michigan was first, stood up statewide um, ADR programs for the eviction dockets. Um, there was uh, a sweet spot there because there was federal funding that, that needed to be spent, and so we had a sort of easy platform. Uh, but it turns out that in local communities that, that, that um, kept the, that process going, uh, it still can be a lot cheaper to figure out solutions than kicking a family out of their apartment. So the, those programs continue to be successful in, in counties where you have a judicial leader who, who wants to do it. And that's, like, honestly, the entire difference between getting evicted in Mason County, Michigan, or getting evicted in, I'm making this up because I don't even know if Berga has a, you know, is a judicial leader in one county, um, worked with the local community mediation center, and set up an alternative dispute resolution program, another, like, unfair unfairness that's kind of built into the system. Recently, there have been some um, jurisdictions that are having a lot of success with mediation and alternative resolution in debt collection cases. Uh, the debt collection case right, right now, by the way, is like the modal case in, in district courts across the country. And there's no way courts can get through those and provide any real process to each individual litigant. Um, and the courts that have an innovative court leader can, can work with their community mediation centers and, and almost always produce better outcomes. There's, I think, all, all kinds of opportunities now for online versions of that. Um, I think that the, there are limitless possibilities for um, successful diversion programs that take the load off of courts and leave time and space for those cases that are going to have to happen in courts. Some, some cases have to happen in courts. Yeah. This is, I'm Tim Sandifer from the Goldwater Institute. Um, what you just said brought to mind um, the federal, the, the California hostility to arbitration. Yeah. The California courts particularly have been engaged in a conscious process of finding ways to avoid enforcing arbitration agreements uh, to the point where, I mean, it's really, I think in many cases, in bad faith on the court's part in the, in the state courts in California. And the reason is because there's this perception that arbitration is tilted in favor of the evil, big, rich, greedy corporations and against the little guy. And so if you're proposing any alternative dispute resolution method, how would you account for that concern to the degree, which I think is vanishingly small, that it has merit? Yeah, I mean, 
it's so interesting because um, certain groups have won the messaging war on so-called forced arbitration, right? Um, and I guess, you know, good for them. They got out in front of it. I, 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 I prefer to um, address it on the merits. I mean, I, I can show you exactly what happens if you have an arbitration at the AAA and the uh, and if you're a self-represented party, the um, the due process requirements and the time and the space that the uh, that the arbitrator takes with you is it's it's pretty compelling. I'd, I'd rather like have people see it on the merits. But I, I agree the messaging has been um, pretty one-sided there. It's odd because um, there is there is such good evidence that diversion programs and arbitration is a diversion program. That's what it is. Um, are so successful in this other category of cases that you think the same people might care about. This eviction diversion programs were stunningly successful across the country. The debt collection diversion programs are stunningly successful. Treatment courts, the, 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 the treatment court programs, which are criminal dockets where people are, um, uh, instead of going to jail, given some intensive treatment options, depending on what their issue is that brought them to court in the first place, are, are far more successful than traditional criminal dockets. Those are ADR programs. That's what they are, you know? And, and so I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I feel like I'm, uh, I want to talk a lot about, I want to break all that down and talk about what diversion really means um, and how, in fact, successful diversion programs really support the work of the public justice system. And in fact, without them, the public justice system would, would crumble. I mean, imagine, if every case that right now goes to mediation or arbitration had to be litigated in the in the state courts, which are already um, stunningly overwhelmed, so I, there, there's a lot of work to do there. I'm trying to do some of it. Yes, uh, you've put your finger on a uh, large number of problems in the civil justice system, but I'm wondering how what you've recommended, namely increased uh, representation would address the problems in eviction cases. Um, you said there are 1,400 eviction cases a day in Detroit. Um, these cases, m many of them may, to be sure, could be addressed by representation to working out a deal. Yeah. But so many of these cases are just plain, the law isn't the real problem. The law says simply you don't pay your rent, you get evicted. And lawyer representation will not address that uh, unless we change the law and say no 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 you, you... I, I yeah i think you're right i mean i don't mean that you know if we found a lawyer or a law trained paralegal for every single person who got an eviction notice they'd all stay in their apartments they would not but if they didn't they still might understand what the process was and there's you know a robust literature on procedural fairness and its importance to the rule of law i mean people just People need to understand what the legal process is, why, if in fact there is no defense and there's not much they can do about it, why, why, they're, why, why, they're, uh, why the result is what it is. And there's a, I think, very important value in procedural, uh, procedural justice. But it's also the case that oftentimes uh, a landlord would like to work out a deal. Like it is uh, very often the case that just evicting, apart from a, a safety case or you know certain cases, if there is a way to work out a deal and um, get their money eventually, that's usually better. So in many cases, if you figured out a way to um, get people to a diversion program, 
there could be a solution. So I'm going to exercise the host's prerogative of, of last question. I want to confirm something from my experience of what you just said. Um, you know, when I was litigating forfeiture cases at, at IJ, um, just getting a lawyer would almost guarantee that the federal government would op up their initial settlement offer from giving you 20% back of your property to 50%. So that definitely happens. Also, man, do they cut a lot of corners. And just having, you know, maybe an AI that knows rule G of the supplemental rules of admiralty and, and forfeiture actions could be a little bit helpful. So I'm going to paint a, a quick sort of dystopian and possibly utopian picture and invite you to comment on it. Um, I, I think if uh, someone were representing themselves pro se and used an AI to write, help write their briefs and a court was to have a rule that says you're not allowed to do that, I think that's a First Amendment problem, at least. Um, what about a day when somebody's essentially wearing an AI and it's telling them in their ear what is the best response to the, you know, the, the question, for example, is, the, is the, the, the landlord supposed to have a witness here to, to support this, you know, whatever, default eviction petition, and now they know the answer to that question. I think the world looks a lot different. Would, would you, could you see the courts essentially saying, nope, that's too much of an advantage, or it's too much like a lawyer? You can't do it. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think um, courts are going to be pretty resistant to allowing um, anyone. To, I mean, they're, they're, as, as, the only orders I've seen from courts are you can't use it, or you have to disclose it if you used it, or... Um, and I certainly think that would apply to self-represented litigants who find a way, who have it in their glass. You need it in your glasses. If it's in your ear, they'll, they'll notice it in your ear. But we could do glasses, I think. But, um, yeah, I think there's going to be big resistance. I, I don't think the courts are prepared at all for what might be coming, though, because even if you can't do it in the courtroom, there's an awful lot you might be able to do outside the courtroom um, right now, frankly. So... And I don't think the courts are prepared at all. In Michigan, a couple years ago, we proposed a rule allowing people to take their cell phones into courthouses. It, was, it turns out that in some court, courthouses, they, you, could bring, you could take your cell phone in, and others you couldn't. And if it was a courthouse where you couldn't, if you had a lawyer, you could give your lawyer your cell phone, and then you know, your lawyer could, could carry it in. But if you didn't have a lawyer, then um, you couldn't take it in. And so the, the, the main district court in Detroit, 36 district court, where most people have their... Um, their cases adjudicated. If you didn't know that and you took the bus and you got to court and you had your cell phone, you left it in the bushes and it was never there when you got out, right? Um, seemed wrong. A lot of people had like their evidence on their phone. You know, it's like a PPO case and they have, you know, their, their evidence on their phone um, and they can't, they can't take the phone. So we, we published a rule and I, that was like the second most attended hearing by the judges who were, um, who, who were really, really opposed. So, I mean, I, I I, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. That same court wouldn't let you take a pen or a pencil in. No pen or pencil. Apparently, a pen. It could be like a secret gun. I guess somebody saw a James Bond movie and made a rule and couldn't take a pen or pencil. So you can't write down like what the judge tells you. You no 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 writing utensils could be a gun. So you know, we had to like change that statewide. Um, so I think it's going to be a long while before you see the judges letting people use their glasses AI. Well, I expect there might be some litigation over that. There might be. Uh -huh. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.